Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So welcome to the first The Rest is Politics of 2023 with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. On his 50th birthday, no less. It's a, it's a big deal. Do you remember your 50th birthday? You don't really like birthdays, do you? I'm not big on birthdays. It was 50, It was 15 years ago. I don't recall doing anything special. I do feel it's a long time ago, though. Fiona had a big party for her 50th. Uh-huh. And I do remember that. We went to Paris and, and I remember she was a bit shocked that I wanted to come back like six o'clock the next morning because Burnley had a, league, a, a game against <laughs> Arsenal. Um, I think 50 does feel like a big ship. But honestly, Rory, you've got a long, 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 long way to go. You've got thousands of episodes before you get to 65. <laughs> Don't need to panic then. It is quite no. a panicking age, actually. It's, it's a troubling age. Um, right. Now, Alistair, tell us. I'm looking at a view with Ben Nevis in the background. You just see the corner of Ben Nevis. Yeah, I'm up in the Scottish Highlands. Yeah. Um, where actually we've had, we've been here for about a week and the weather has been absolutely amazing and sort of very cold, obviously. We've been swimming in some very, very cold water. Um, but very beautiful. It's such a beautiful part of the world. Made my annual visit to Charles Kennedy's grave to play the lament that was played at his funeral. It's one of the most beautiful burial grounds on the planet. Clan Cameron allowed Charles's family uh, to be buried up in this absolutely oh, stunning – you wouldn't define it as a cemetery. It's just a burial ground. And you have to climb up this this quite sort of steep, rocky climb. Is Clan Campbell going to allow you to be buried in some spectacular spot in the Highlands? I would hope so. I would hope so. I've actually, I w- there's been a bit of revisionism going on about, because this, of course, is not far from Glencoe. Yeah. And we, we, we don't want to morph too much into the rest is history. <laughs> but there was a pretty famous massacre there. But yeah. I've discovered, Roy, this is, this, I was going to throw this one at you, because it turns out that although there's no doubt that the Campbells did sort of... Didn't treat the Stuarts well. No. And that's what's given us a bit of a reputation as being one of the most duplicitous clans around um, and brutal as well. However, digging into it a little bit, I discovered that actually the real mythology around this was the Campbells murdering the McDonald's in the, dark, in the middle of the night actually flowed almost 150 years later from a few sort of quasi-official um, inquiries that were really being set up to absolve the then King William uh-huh. of any blame for the whole sort of fandango. So I think the Campbell's reputation, here I am spinning as ever, the Campbell's reputation, <laughs> not quite so. There is, still a, there is still a pub up there that has a sign outside, no Campbell's or ho- hawkers allowed. We've got to return to this in a bit. I mean, let's get you onto the less controversial ground of, of the National Health Service. But I think we've got to return at some point to this because I'm afraid the Campbell's did a lot of bad stuff before Glencoe, which we may want to explore at some point. But anyway, onto the NHS. You've been talking about Basic view is Britain's broken, and you've been talking a lot about 
NHS and trains. Is that right? Well, I, th- I think it's interesting how this time of year when people's conversations are about, you know, next year and arrangements and so forth. I mean, for example, two of the people that we were expecting to join us up here didn't actually make it. Uh, one of them made it as far as Newcastle by train. Another one made it as far as Preston uh, by train. But I think the health service is, I mean, obviously, as you know, the papers up here are very, very different to the papers in London. And it's quite interesting to see how the, the papers in England seem to be all about A&E services just not not functioning, wait times, staff morale, all this stuff, ambulance waits, etc. And you've got exactly the same in Scotland, where you have a combination of Labour, the Lib Dems, and the Conservatives calling for a recall of Holyrood so that the Scottish government can be held to account for the shambles of the health service. And, of course, in England, you have the Conservatives saying, no, 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 nothing to see here. It's all going very, very well. And just, just, sorry, just, just for listeners, just remind them, that's because health services are devolved. So it's one of the great yeah. political footballs. And I remember when I entered politics in 2010, um, health was going badly in Wales. And one of the great attack lines in the House of Commons, whenever the Conservatives were attacked about health in England, was to say, well, Labour's managing it badly in Wales. And then I guess at the moment, it's the SNP's managing it badly in Scotland. But maybe that's a chance at some point for us to talk a little bit about structurally why the health service is in such trouble and is likely to remain under very, very serious trouble, almost whoever comes in. Sorry to kick off our very, very first podcast of the year on your birthday, but I do think we have to talk about austerity here. There was an absolutely fantastic, I don't know if you follow this guy from the Financial Times called John Byrne Murdoch. I really started to get to notice him during the COVID pandemic because he was He's a data scientist and he just looks sort of ruthlessly, relentlessly at data and writes about it. And he did a, a fantastic thread. I, re- I think we should put it in the, in the show notes and we should really, really have a look at it because he did a fantastic thread two days before Christmas. And, he, and it starts as follows. Britain's grim winter of strikes, falling incomes and a worsening NHS crisis. This is not some unfortunate series of events. It's the inevitable result of a decade of Tory austerity that has steadily weakened the state's capacity to respond to shocks. He then posts a number of graphs. He posts a lot of graphs on spending of healthcare as a percentage of GDP. He actually does put blue for the Tory years, red for the Labour years. And you can see in terms of public sector fixed investment, government spending on healthcare as a percentage of GDP, really significant rises during the new Labour years, and then flattening out. And then, then he, he, he meets the point, and this is the point you often make, Rory. Some will say the Tories' hand was forced in 2010. Most countries had to tighten their belts as they faced off against the global crisis. But, he says, the Tory belt tightening was tighter than what other governments did in any of our peer countries. And he then sets these graphs against the other countries and how they have recovered better. And then makes this, I think, incredibly important point. Technically speaking, he says, the NHS budget was protected from the cuts, but with a rapidly aging and ailing population, merely maintaining health spend has been proven insufficient. So other countries have continued to grow their health spending as a share of GDP, whereas here we've declined. And then, of course, you throw Brexit into the mix, which has directly, I think, caused some of the staffing problems. And I actually think some of the morale problems within the the health service professions as well. And then he's got a stunning graph about nurses' pay in real terms, where you see it going up and up and up and up during labour, and then flattening down under the Tories, and now had a quite a substantial fall. So and I've only covered the first three or four graphs. He's got about 20, 50 graphs on it. It's really worth looking at. So I think, firstly, for listeners, I think that's absolutely true. No doubt at all. Labour spent far more on health. I think 
on average, Nuffield Trust has got some great data on this. And under the Labour government, 97-2010, average real term increases of about 5.4% a year. So that's not just keeping in, in line with inflation, that's 5.4% above. Period before 97, the Conservative government was running in the two, sort of 2.5-2.6% a year. Early years, the coalition basically flatlined and then changed under Boris Johnson. So the last two, three years, there were some very, very substantial increases. So Boris Johnson put an extra $34 billion in, which even in real terms was going to be a 7.4% increase. So 152 to $182 billion a year going into the NHS. A lot to do with dealing with the pandemic, of course. Um, no, that, that's, that's excluding the pandemic-related okay. costs. That was a huge increase under Boris Johnson. And that, that was the £11 billion national insurance okay, right. into the NHS stuff. Which he said was part to fix social care. And, and then he diverted it back to the NHS, yeah. yeah, which is one of the structural things. Um, all these rises have been massively eroded by inflation running at 10%. The government awarded a 5% pay rise to the NHS in July, but that's been swallowed up immediately by, by inflation. So you're completely right. The, um, the Conservatives have spent much less year-on-year in real terms increases than Labour. The question, I guess, is, is this a sustainable situation? Because as, as the man you're quoting points out, the fundamental problem underlying it all is that costs have skyrocketed. So in real terms, we're spending about 4% as much as we were spending in 1979 on health mm-hmm. and doubled the share of the GDP we're spending on health compared to 1979. So it's going up and up and up all the time. But in the last 30 years, the number of people over 85 has doubled, and the number of people aged between 20 and 24 has shrunk by a fifth. So the the fundamental structural problem is fewer and fewer young people paying for the care of more and more elderly people and getting more Mm. expensive all the time. By the way, which is is another reason why there has to be a far more grown-up debate about immigration. Exactly, because we need more young people coming. But let let me me, um, sort of pay tribute to somebody who I think is one of the heroes of this story, which is Alan Milburn. Mm-hmm. So Alan Milburn really tried to grip the situation, Labour Health Secretary, and he tried to make some very, very fundamental changes to the way the NHS had been designed. In fact, he tried to, you, if you were going to be cheeky, you'd say that he went right back to the 1940s in the debates between the Conservatives and Bevan, the, the Labour Health Secretary, on how the NHS was going to be set up. The Conservatives were pushing more for what is now a kind of Dutch system where you had more independent hospitals. And that's what Alan Milburn was really trying to do. And he tried to do it with a massive injection of money, which is the right way to reform the NHS, bring in more money at the same time as reforms, try to set up these foundation trusts, and then had his legs cut out from under him by Gordon Brown, I guess. (laughs) I I, I think Alan would have described it in even more colourful terms. (laughs) Um, So what is the story of that? Do you remember any of that stuff and what happened there? Uh, God, I wish you'd have warned me because I could have consulted my, my, my diaries because I hate talking about these things from sort of what becomes a, a false memory. But certainly, I mean, the specifics of the reform, I think Tony was, Tony Blair was always of the view that the, the massive investment that we promised had to be allied to reform. That if you just sort of basically put the message that all it ever needs is more money and there's not reform alongside it, that that becomes problematic or, politically as well as structurally for the National Health Service. You have to have that reform running alongside. This did come at a period where the so-called TBGBs, the kind of difficulties between Tony and Gordon, were, I guess, reaching something of a peak. And I I think you're right to pay tribute to what Alan was trying to do, um, but it sort of got swallowed up in that that sense of Tony really is the kind of arch-modernizer and Gordon, you know, 
projecting a slightly different image of himself and what he believed the government was for. And I can remember there was, I can't remember how many pages it was, but Gordon wrote an analysis. It was a very long analysis of what Alan's proposals were, uh, which, as these things often did, found its way into Her Majesty's media and triggered, you know, some pretty difficult infighting. And, and once that happens with policy development, it becomes very, very difficult to get the show back on the road. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I couldn't ever do as a politician, and I guess politicians can't do, is try to talk openly and honestly about the problems in the NHS, the structural problems, which, which Alan Milburn would try to fix. So if I could just take a little time to do that, I think, and beginning by obviously paying tribute, very, very strong tribute to doctors and nurses and the incredible work they're doing. But they are in a very, very difficult system. And if we were designing the NHS again, we wouldn't make it look like this. I think we'd make it look much more like the Dutch or French system with more of an insurance basis on it. Mm. Because we've got a lot of the problems of a very, very centralized, nationalized industry. And I guess one of the biggest problems is the way the Treasury works, which is the Treasury is always very, very reluctant to make any capital investment because that costs them a lot in the short term, instead of which they tend to give way on current investment, which costs them less in the short term, but much more in the long term. I guess the analogy would be somebody refusing to do the work on fixing the roof in their house and instead paying much more for the plumber every year to keep on going. So mm -hmm. we're massively underinvested in terms of the capital of the NHS. We haven't begun to put the right investments into data. We just don't have, if you compare to leading countries like South Korea or Japan, I think it's got four times the number of MRI machines, six times the number of CAT scanners compared to the UK per head. And we haven't really been able to deal with some workforce issues. There is, unfortunately, still serious bullying and racism in the NHS that hasn't really been dealt with. All these things, I think, are very tough for any politician to talk about. And as Alan Milburn found out, very, very difficult to bring through the reforms which we need to bring through because it's not a sustainable system in the long run. Well, also, if you go back to the Richard Johnson era, where this whole focus on you know, 40 new hospitals, which aren't actually new hospitals, as though that is what the infrastructure of the health service should be. And when you mention Holland, I think that one of the problems we have is that we have a national illness service. We don't think about it as a health service. So the focus, you know, rightly, when people get sick, they want to know that they can see a doctor, they want to know that there's a hospital there if they get very, very sick, and they want to know that they can get an operation in good order, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's very little focus or there's, far, there's insufficient focus on what we can do to keep ourselves healthy. And I don't, I actually, even though trust is now gone, I think you could sense even in that brief period that she was there, this idea that, well, people actually should be allowed to make their own choices about, you know, how they live their life and exercise and diet and all this other stuff. You know, she didn't even want to do that sort of, you know, fairly inexpensive propaganda program about how to insulate your homes. And, and so all the stuff that we can do to make ourselves healthier, I think figures very, very little in the debate about health within the UK. Whereas you go to some of these other countries, I think I've told you before about in relation to mental health and addiction, for example, that the place where my son and actually where Charles Kennedy almost went to for treatment for, for alcoholism, a place in the, in the Scottish borders, was kept alive, kept going, courtesy of the Dutch government sending their hardest case heroin addicts to be treated for their addiction because the Dutch government had this view that if they could really 
treat them, stop them being addicts, they were going to make, not just make their lives better for the long term, but also save the healthcare system money in the long term as well. Just on that one, Alice, I, I 100%, and without sounding too sort of centrist right about this, that's because the incentives align for the health providers in, in Holland. So they have incentives to try to improve public health because it helps their bottom line. It reduces pressure on the system. Exactly. But, but that's that's the way that we should be thinking about our prisons budget. It's the way that we should be thinking about our health service budget. And the problem I think we're into now is that, and I do think this is becoming existential, and I do think it's becoming existential partly fueled and ventilated by the right wing of the Conservative Party. When you see the some of the, the things that they say, well, it's the system that's busted, therefore we need to break the system, therefore we... And you know what they mean. They're talking about moving to a much more American-style healthcare system. And Ian Kennedy, I think... I don't know if I've talked about Ian Kennedy before. Ian Kennedy, who's a, he's a friend of ours, but he, you might remember him. He chaired the Bristol Babies Inquiry. He actually, he brought in the system for passports for pets, to, for dogs to, and cats to be able to travel with their owners when they go into the European Union. He's a kind of, he's, he's in the health sector, but he's also academic and he's a lawyer. And he wrote a piece in our good friend, The New European recently, where he'd heard us having this discussion on the podcast and I had said, look, there is a part of me that thinks that some of these Tories actually really do want to break up the health service because they see it as the kind of ultimate in a socialist experiment that they don't like. And Ian wrote, and we, again, we should probably put this in the notes if I can get a link to it. He wrote a piece saying that he's actually moved to that opinion as well. And going back to austerity and then through the implications of Brexit and then through the belief that the market is actually the solution to all. And he wrote a very compelling piece that suggested that actually there is a very strong strand of opinion now on the right of British politics that really wants to undermine the health service. And I'm, I'm finding it very baffling, Rory, that Sunak is virtually silent on this. His New Year message had a sort of throwaway line about how much money they're putting into the health service. Stephen Barclay appears to me to be next to invisible in terms of actually trying to resolve these problems that we're facing, you know, here and now. And is there a sense that they just will let this drift a bit longer and eventually people say, do you know what, the health service has had it, we've got to throw it up in the air? Where I agree with Ian Kennedy is that there is an element on the far right. It, it isn't Steve Barkley and Rishi Sunak. They're not trying to destroy the health service, but you're definitely right. It was that element that pushed the mainstream, for example, towards Brexit or, for yeah, example, no, you're towards... You're absolutely right. There is an element on the far right, which, which we have to worry about that. And actually the worst health secretary on record was Enoch Powell, who was the most terrible health secretary imaginable. I mean, the right of the Conservative Party has been terrible. Andrew, Andrew Lansley will be pleased to hear that there was a worst health secretary. No, Andrew Lansley was trying to reform things. I mean, in, I know, you know, I, I, that was a cheap shot. That was my first cheap shot of 2023. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll have a cheap shot at Frank Dobson then, who was a totally hopeless health secretary and made no efforts at all. Oh, no, that's not true. Patricia Hewitt tried, tried hard, but didn't maybe have the human touch. But definitely the prize here goes to Alan Milburn. But I, I think the, 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 the question, though, is, and I suppose this comes to the question of, well, maybe we can move on to these New Year messages. Is Keir Starmer going to be able to come in? It was wonderful to hear in his New Year message that he was talking about reform, reform to the public sector. But definitely the thing, the best sales pitch that you can make for Tony Blair's government is people like Alan Milburn, putting in more money and reforming at the same time. And of course, the, the worst of what people worry about with Labour is that he'll come in, he'll put more money in, and he won't have the political courage to reform. Mm. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting how um, Gordon was a cash plus reform person as well. And so, and Tony absolutely was a cash plus plus reform. I'm sure Alan Milburn will be delighted to hear all this 
praise showering his way. But I think the, the, the problem there did become one of the, of the bigger political problem that was, that was slightly engulfing the government at the time. Um, I've just dug up Ian Kennedy's piece. And, and he does say, funny enough, this relates to the point that I'd made earlier. Maybe this is where I sort of, you know, where it implanted itself. And I'd forgotten Ian did the wreath lectures back in 1980. And he said this, he said, redefining the NHS as a healthcare service or even an illness service turns the spotlight onto hospitals. They, it is said, are the NHS's future. We need more of them, apparently 40 more, according to one of the recent Prime Ministers, Johnson. This is so perverse in so many ways that it's hard to know where to begin, save to notice that the developers and the builders will be rubbing their hands. We've already seen that if health is the goal, building hospitals is an own goal. And and I think the the point he goes on to make is that, you know, the the health service is much more than buildings and it's much more than, than hospitals. And the big part that I think is really, really in struggling at the moment is the staff, the staff morale. We, we, I mean, because we've talked so much about health today, let's not do it in the Q&A. But can I just throw in some of the questions that have come in this week on health? Alan Clark, consultant gastroenterologist at Airdrie uh, in Scotland. Happy New Year. What are you two most going to miss about the health service when it goes? Because it is going to go and everyone in politics and the mainstream media seems to be standing around and letting it happen. What I'm going to miss is looking after patients who can't afford health care. Rachel Clark she's a palliative care doctor she said witnessing the horrors in hospitals currently this is directly a question to rory based on a 12-year record do you have any reason to believe that your party isn't wholeheartedly committed to terminally destroying our once great nhs stuart bertie have rory and alistair ever known a time where public services have been run down to this extent so this is coming from people who are working day in day out on the front line in the health service and they're sounding like they just can't see a future for this well, it's, it's a terrible situation. I mean, I think COVID was a blow beyond imagining. And I think it's going to be very difficult for the NHS to, to come back from that. I think we have a crisis every winter, goes all the way back to, to your time in government. We did, we did stop the NHS winter crisis, Rory. We did. Very good. Very good. But these winter crises come again and again and again. And I think this public health point is totally critical. But I also think there's a, a fundamental design problem. I mean, Bevan was driven obviously, by his consciousness that at that period in Wales, the quality of healthcare was much worse than it was in richer parts of the country. Mm. And he thought the solution to this was to nationalise. But the consequences have been that a lot of the stronger trusts were undermined. And we've ended up now in a very odd system in which some poorer parts of the country, like Manchester, have better healthcare than wealthier parts of the country, like such as East Anglia. Cumbria, where I was the MP, was terrible. As I say, you know, most of the old people in Cumbria would make this joke that they would rather, you know, they could save money going to Switzerland to die by going to the Cumberland Infirmary because so many people were were dying. And was that was that fair? Was that was that? Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely terrible. They did breast cancer screening and then they lost all the X-rays. And it turned out a lot of the women they'd screened did have breast cancer, and they just didn't bother to get back in touch with them. And the superbrug results were terrible. And so, in, and it was actually very interesting trying to get into what the problems were there. Mm. You know, my my grandfather was a doctor, my uncle's a doctor, my cousin's a doctor. I mean, I, I come from very much from that world. And I think they are extraordinary people. But I do think the NHS structurally desperately, desperately needs reform. And it also desperately needs more money. But I think the two things got to go together. Now, yeah. New Year messages. Yeah. What did you think of the messages of Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, for example? Let's start with them. Because I think the, the king just did a Christmas message, right? I did think his was interesting. I thought I thought Charles's first Christmas broadcast as king was was interesting. I think it was more 
I don't want to use the word political in a, you know, I think it was more political, small p, than his mum's used to be. I suspect if you were a striking ambulance worker watching, you're probably feeling quite sort of chuffed at the recognition. I can remember one of the banes of our life. He's, oh, God, not the union message again. It's like it was one of those <laughs> things. You, you sort of feel the last thing politics people want to hear is a private minister telling them what they should feel and think for the next the next year. So I, I, I say this with that insight and with that knowledge that often you put a lot of work into it knowing that it's just going to kind of, you know, drop like a stone. Um, I thought it was interesting you picked up the point from Keir Starmer's. I mean, it was, it was, I thought both of them, both Sunak and Starmer were more, more in commentary mode than political leader mode. But I yep. agree with you that the point that I picked out of Keir Starmer's was this, this emphasis on Essentially, he was saying that they've now got to move into setting out the alternative agenda. I've been saying this for, for some time. This is absolutely the period where that has to step up, I believe. I thought with Sunak, there was quite a lot of kind of blaming going on. It was, it was very much, and for both of them, of course, the, the Brexamurta stands, there was very little mention of the elephant in the room. Sunak, I think, was wanting us to believe that COVID and Ukraine were giving us these terrible problems. And, you know, we were sort of a great enough country to be able to see them off. But there, there wasn't much of a plan there, I didn't feel. it. I agree. I mean, I, I think the sad thing where was that the plan seemed to be, we're going to have a coronation and we're going to keep fighting for freedom in Ukraine. Exactly. We're, we're all going to come together when King Charles gets the crown put on his head. So tell me, you're, you're the obviously the specialist in this, but if I'd been doing that speech, uh, my temptation would have been to say, we are facing an enormous problem. Right. Mm. This is terrible. And everybody can see out their windows that this is terrible. And we, the government, are part of the reason for that. It's also true that our lives have been made more difficult by COVID and by Ukraine, but I'm not going to keep blaming those things forever. Um, here's the solution. This is what we're going to do. It's going to be tough. We're going to make it through. It's going to be a pretty horrible year ahead. But these are the things that make me feel that within a year, we're going to come out the other side. Um, why, why don't they give those kind of speeches? Or why didn't Rishi Sunak, I guess, who's the prime minister, give that kind of speech? Um, I, d I honestly don't know. I felt his speech felt like somebody, somebody said when he was at, I think he was at the CBI, one of the sketch writers, I think I've got the right event, and he said it was like watching somebody who'd rather unexpectedly be made head boy of his school and he'd been given five minutes to go and talk about anything he wanted to talk about. He didn't come across like a political leader. He came across like a commentator trying to persuade us that things weren't quite as bad as maybe they felt. Whether a New Year message is the right place to do that. Whether it gets lost, I don't know. But I think in terms of the overall messaging, that's the sort of messaging that they did around the financial statement, wasn't it? Yep. It was, and, and that's, I think, we're, we're not through that, that kind of feel for the country. And I think this sense of he's standing in Downing Street, it's all looking a bit grand and glitzy. We, we had this bizarre... Um, I mean, I don't know what you thought of this, Rory, as a sort of piece of communication strategy. With it. Did you see the piece that his wife had this sort of profile piece where her friends had sort of cooperated <laughs> with the tattler to, to sort of tell us how in touch she was? And I just thought that Rishi Sunak, it strikes me, his, he hasn't worked out how he intends to put himself across to the public. All we know is that he's being quite low profile. I, I think that's right. I think, and I think the key in that is that he's in charge. He's got to be in charge. And he talked about this government, but I would have wanted to hear more. I get there's a problem. This is my solution. This is where we're going. Come with me. 
But I think if you've if, if you've got like so, so two big things going on at the moment. Uh, I I haven't managed to get private eye up in the the Scottish Highlands, but somebody sent me a photograph of this thing. It's, it's, it's an advert for the Brexo detector. Can you find the hidden Brexit bounty just waiting to be discovered beneath Britain's sovereign soil? This technological marvel. It's got a sort of Hoover type thing. It's been made in Singapore by Dyson. It can detect the tiniest opportunity buried where no one can see it. Just turn on the Brexit opportunity detector and ping. Is that a trade deal? No, it's a bottle top. But you never know. <laughs> Next time, it could be a huge increase in GDP. Price, £350 million. So that's kind of, I think, where the, a lot of the public are. I think I'm right in saying that neither of the Keir Starmer nor Rishi Sunak made any reference either to the Irish context or to the fact of the trade implications and the health service as well. Sunak barely mentioned yeah. the health service other than we're putting lots of money in. We're putting lots of money in, yeah. Well, the only thing that made me cheerful about um, about Keir Starmer was that he stole part of my slogan for, for my London mayoral race. Oh, my God. My, my slogan was fairer, greener, more united, and he went with fairer, greener, more dynamic. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm I'm cutting through. I wonder if he did. Um, I don't think we should sort of overblow our own trumpets. We do enough of that. But I, I, I do think that if you remember when we met him to, to interview him for the podcast, we said two things. One was that, you know, was he really seized of how constitutionally the country felt a bit broke? And also that we were pressing him on this idea that actually the nature of our politics, what our politics had become under Johnson, that there needed to be much more about that in the public debate. And he did. He, he was on to that in the New Year message as well. He was good on that. He was good on that. Should we go for a break and come back? Then I think we should come back and talk about what I think was the New Year message, not just of this New Year, but of many New Years, and that was um, Zelensky's. Very good. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. Now, before we get going on the second half, where I think we'll be more foreign policy focused, I know a lot of our listeners, like Rory and like me, are on Twitter. But as you know, and especially with Mr. Musk at the helm, it can be a rather chaotic, often unpleasant place when politics is raised. So we have started a new online politics chat room for the members of The Rest is Politics Plus, many of whom joined over Christmas to see us at the Alba Hall on the website Discord. It allows our listeners, as I call them, or readers, as Rory calls them, to debate the latest political news, discuss the content from our most recent episodes, agree disagreeably amongst yourself, or even disagree agreeably, and just carry on the conversation in more depth. If you're interested in joining, just head to therestispolitics.com to sign up. And if you're already a member, we've already sent you an invite to the chat room on your email. And hopefully you can look forward to taking part in even deeper conversations about politics and all that it involves. Well, Alistair, thank you for that. Um, during during the break, I've been doing that famous Googling that you're always accusing me of. And and I found the entry just before your, your 50th birthday. I said, sorry, on your 50th birthday. You're joking. So tw- 25th of May, 2007. Seven. Yeah. And this is your meeting, Gordon Brown. It relates quite neatly, actually, to what we were talking about in the first half, which is the politics, the NHS, and the problems of trying to get reforms through. Oh, so, God. I jumped in a cab, arrived just on time. Gordon Brown looked tired. His second chin was larger. Oh, hair no, a mess. Harsh. Nails on right hand, not so gnarled, but on the left, they were bitten right down. He was not in great shape, I would say. Rory, 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 we're trying to persuade Gordon to come on the podcast and do an interview. <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry about that. Carry but on. I think he might have read it already. He went straight into a thing about how competence was the issue. We've lost the NHS as a political argument, all that money, but we've lost the argument. He went through a plan someone had put together for him to revise healthcare in London as a way of showing how it can be done elsewhere. I said it felt it was too much accepting the culture of negativity. But he said, if he was out there just defending the record, nobody would listen. I felt both were possible. He said he had to be the future. He could not just do the past. I said you have to do both. He had to be continuity and change. One did not work without the other. Also, there was not enough of an attack on the Tories. That sounds like you. About to come to an end here. Um, I was in there for about an hour or so, and it didn't feel great. I felt de-energized by it. He lost it at one point when he raged about how much the party was in debt, how the machine had been allowed to atrophy. 26 million fucking pounds of debt. That is the inheritance. He was pressing me to work for him. And eventually he said, he would either like a private arrangement where I offered advice in the background or what he would prefer, where I would run the Labour Party. He said it would not matter who the general secretary was. He would want me to oversee campaigns and comms. He went into a tirade about how since I left, there was nobody bringing it all together, coordinating message. Also, he wanted me to help him put together a plan to communicate new approach on health. He was very friendly, but a lot of anger spilled out at times. And I was trying to persuade him he should be a lot more confident and optimistic, but not easy. Great writing, incidentally, Alison. I can see why your your diaries are such bestsellers. I love the the sense that you get an image of him, a sense of how you were feeling during the meeting. Not true, I'm afraid, of Matt Hancock's latest diaries. My favourite headline over the <laughs> holiday period was in The Independent, and it said, Hancock's diaries officially a flop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they measure a flop. So but. just to explain, this is just a month before Tony Blair resigns and Gordon Brown takes over as PM. So that's Gordon absolutely, presumably, in his most nervous waiting to take over. And you'd left two years before, hadn't you? 
I'd left in 2003, went back for the 2005 campaign. That was definitely a period when I was, I mean, I use the word de-energized. I think if you, if you read around that period, I'm seeing my psychiatrist quite a lot. I was not in a great shape. And, and would, your, would your psychiatrist have advised you to take up that job of running the Labour Party that Gordon Brown offered you? Uh, what he said the whole time was that I, I felt trapped and only I could decide whether I wanted to be in that trap or out of that trap, but there was no kind of half in, half out. And, you know, that's been the, it's been the story of my life for quite a long time of that sense of being half in, half out. I did feel, because even though by come that time, the Tony Gordon thing, as you say, it was, it was almost coming to an end. Gordon and I, we'd had many, many ups and downs. I, I remember the meeting itself. I do remember it specifically because I can remember, I remember, I think, I don't know if I say this in the diary, but I remember going home and talking to Fiona and basically saying, look, he wants me to go in and run the Labour Party. And she said, well, you know, that's not true. He wants you to go and run his campaign. And <laughs> Gordon kept trying to find these new ways of, you know, he'd offered me a place in the cabinet. He'd offered me the Olympics, sport minister, all sorts of different things. And I just felt the whole time that I was I was trapped between these two people who were both giants, both of incredible talent and incredible skills politically, and both of whom I believed in. And I was probably, uh, you know, there are other members of the Tony circle who felt that I allowed myself to be used by Gordon, that Gordon did eventually get me to go back and help him run his campaign, did help with the transition from Tony. That, and that I remember that phrase I used, I think, that you read out about continuity and change. That became the kind of the mantra, Gordon had to represent continuity and change. And that became part of the, the thing that, that really, you know, led us to where we then, we then got to. I'm still very, very torn about the whole thing, to be honest. Whether you shouldn't perhaps have taken that, taken some of those jobs because you, you chose, you, you chose not to do any of those things, didn't you? Or whether I should have, yeah, I think what I chose to do was to stay half in, half out. And it's never a very, very good place to be. I've just looked up the diary myself now, Rory, and I see that it ends at the Albert Hall. That entry ends at the Albert Hall because Fiona and I went to see Mick Hucknall singing oh. at the Albert Hall. And I, th I think you'll find you were in his dressing room. Oh, I was in Mick Hucknall's dressing room. I went to see Gordon Brown just before that, before you saw him. I'd just come out of Iraq and I was in Afghanistan and he asked to see me and I went to see him in the Treasury. So he's still the Chancellor. And he gave me an hour of his time and he wanted to quiz me on Iraq. And it was a very interesting uh, interaction. I managed to get in my normal pretty pessimistic statements about Iraq. And I could see there was a sort of glint in his eye because he was going to announce as soon as he took over that they were basically getting out of Iraq and mm. moving into Afghanistan. But it was also a sort of, for somebody who didn't really know politicians, I guess, yeah, that, that period I was, um, I was still in my early, early 30s. The sense that I thought this guy has set aside a great honor. Chancellor Dixiek has set aside over an hour to spend time with a guy in his early 30s who's just come, come back from Afghanistan. But actually what happened is I think out of that hour, for 58 minutes, he spoke. Uh, he mm. lectured me on the Treaty of Westphalia. I learned an enormous amount about 17th century European politics, but um, mm. he didn't actually ask me that much about what I'd seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> it's funny, Lou, we, we didn't plan to sort of have this trip down all our yesterdays, but of course the other thing that's been popping up uh, in recent days is this all this stuff being released from the early days of the Blair government. So tell us about this. So there was one of the interesting things that comes out. And one of them is that Tony Blair remained, and this is something you've admitted, quite optimistic on Vladimir Putin. And it's clear from the release of the papers, National Archives now released them under the 25-year rule, 
that he remained optimistic on Putin despite officials trying to push back and saying he was still posting hostile intelligence officers in. He was trying to sh- throw the UK under the bus for crashing a submarine into a boat, which the UK hadn't done. Mm. And, and the other thing that comes out of this is that Nelson Mandela had come to try to suggest that he could intercede with Gaddafi over the question of the, the Lockerbie bombing and Megrahi, who was the man who'd been accused of orchestrating the, the Libyan bombing. And I think Mandela was very much on the side of people who thought McGrahi had been framed and he wasn't actually guilty of this at all. Yeah. T- tell us about either of those things. Well, I think the, the, the thing about uh, Mandela, there's, there's a line in, in my diary somewhere where we, we actually they were talking about Libya and it might even have been in relation to this because Mandela did have quite a romantic view about Gaddafi, I think. Um, and we've talked before about, you know, some of those links between, you know, Mandela, for example, in relation to Sinn Féin. Yeah. You know, they, they sometimes, I think, felt like the the underdogs, felt like the guys who'd been sort of, you know, hit upon by the globalist establishment and so forth. But I can remember Tony at one point saying, God almighty, Nelson, the trouble with you is everybody sees you as such a saint. You can come out with all this nonsense about Gaddafi, but we have to sit here and nod as though we agree with you. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting when these papers come out, there's one, for example, the one about Russia. I read some of the, the, the media coverage and the, the headlines were, you know, Blair saw Putin as a Russian patriot. There was a thing about us giving him these silver Downing Street cufflinks as a sort of, you know, little gift and, and all this stuff. There's very little in those papers, I think, that you wouldn't have known from the time. Right. I think what's really interesting is when you get these papers where actually you you find out the stuff that you didn't necessarily know. I was fascinated, for example, to read that, uh, and maybe I did know this at the time, but Jeremy Haywood, who was went on to become cabinet secretary, yeah. but there was a, there was a paper where he was so infuriated by the way that the press were covering us that he was sort of putting around this idea that we should have a sort of a fact regulator as some somebody who could sort of check the facts of newspapers. <laughs> and, you know, and, and there was there's another one I saw, I, and again I have no memory of writing this at all. A thing that I put around it was a note I sent to to Tony and the headline in the Guardian was Minister's Media Indiscipline Beyond a Joke, Campbell wrote. And this is clearly just me and one of my sort of, you know, you've seen them occasionally, Roy, when I get into a bit of a bad mood and I kind of fire off an angry <laughs> an angry email. Well, this was that. And then, and then you suddenly see them 25 years as though they're so they're important. I don't think it was very important at all. I was just sort of, you know, letting off a bit of steam somewhere. The, the McGrahy thing is very interesting, isn't it? I mean, you, you read us a bit of Private Eye Out earlier. And Private Eye, I think, did a loss of the reporting on McGrahy, casting a lot of doubt on whether he hadn't actually been framed, that the FBI and the CIA had paid huge amounts of money, it seemed, potentially, to some of the witnesses, that one of the witnesses against him was clearly a bit crazy, um, that other bits of evidence pointed, in fact, to the Iranians, not the Libyans at all. Mm. And remember, he was about to appeal his case. And a lot of British lawyers were very doubtful about the um, conviction which happened in Scotland when he was released on compassionate grounds. Um, was Is this stuff you remember at all, people being worried about whether he was guilty and whether we'd been sort of pushed into it? I only remember it in the context of the, the, that context that we're talking about in relation to that was a line that was being pushed quite heavily by the Libyans. And I do think that Mandela was more minded to believe them than believe us. But he may have been right. He may have been right in this as in many other things. Who, Mandela? Yes. 
Um, before I answer that, Rory, what stage is the legal process in right now? <laughs> well, Paul McGrath is now dead, so I think the whole thing. <laughs> there, there was some. There was something up up here in the news about Lockerbie the other day, which wasn't about this. Oh, I see. Well, I, I won't drag you into a legal case. I do. I do. I do remember Mandela once saying that those who feel irritated or confused by my relationship with with Gaddafi can go jump in the river. I think was the phrase that he used. He was certainly not 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 backing down. Oh, right. Okay. So, so so it's it's possible that he was right about Megrahi and wrong about Gaddafi, who definitely was a very bad person. It's quite funny, interesting, though, you because you know you get all these civil servants. I've, I've got to be honest. There were some of the notes that were written that were sort of presented in the coverage of the of what's emerged from the National Archives. They were written by people who were described by senior, as senior civil servants. And some of them, I literally can't remember them. So I don't know whether every piece of paper that gets released, yeah. this is this is why, to, to give the rest of his history another plug, yeah. it's why it's so hard to be a historian. How do you differentiate in significance between a note that the prime minister has written uh, setting out to say his approach because the other thing that happened this week, Roy, the Irish government have released loads of papers related to the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, and they're fascinating because they they give a very different perspective of how they went into those talks and the issues that they felt were important. So if you're the historian sitting there, they can come and talk to people like us, and we can try and remember who was in the room and what was said and what the mood was like. But honestly, I I just I just think it's. Uh, it's hard to work out. It's incredible. And when you go back in time, you realize how random it is, which documents happen to survive and what a disproportionate influence they have and how excited historians will get, medieval historians, you know, if they find one key administrative document and they'll try to use it to turn on its head all the assumptions. The other thing that was in this, this batch, do you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the worst idea I ever had, yeah. which was to get Celtic and Rangers to play each other, wear each other's strips. I mean, it really was the worst idea I ever had. But in this batch was the the note that I wrote on it. And it's worse than I thought because it's a, no, it's a note that I sent to Tony Blair, copied to Mo Molam, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, and Donald Dewar, Secretary of State for Scotland. I mean, heaven knows what they thought. The, the final thing, we, we'll, we'll leave um, maybe Zelensky and Putin to question time and talk about them in a little bit more detail. But can I just finish on Mo Molum because we're coming at the end? One of the things that she appears a lot on is that she was really determined to try to legalize cannabis, which obviously had yeah. nothing to do with her uh, departmental role. She was the Northern Ireland secretary. But her voice was quite strong. And Tony Blair basically said, we can't really touch this issue so long as Mo Molum is around, which sounded slightly threatening. So he was rather hoping to move her on at some point. <laughs> he said, I've, I've got that one right in front of me right now. Because the other great thing about these papers is that when prime ministers are traveling, uh, and this is certainly the case with Tony, and I think with Gordon as well, you're often traveling. You, can't be, you don't want to sit there pinging away at a laptop. So they're reading paper. And they're reading things on paper. And then Tony would often just put little ticks at the bottom, which meant this is fine, whatever you're being proposed. Other, or he might ask for more information. So this one, he just said at the bottom of a note that was written by Liz Lloyd, who was his advisor on home affairs stuff, look, colon. Now, Tony loves a good colon, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the colon usually reveals that he's a little bit irritated that he's having to deal with this. So that is doubled down by the look, look, colon. 
We can't deal with this whilst Mo remains. She now just does her own thing. But I back Hellowell's view. He was the so-called drug czar. And we just have to manage it for the moment. And Hellowell's view, just, just to remind listeners, was that he saw cannabis as a gateway drug into harder drugs. And he was very determined not to legalize cannabis. Have he you did. changed your mind on that now that you've become increasingly liberal and left wing? I, I don't see this as being liberal and left wing. I changed my mind on drugs, not just on cannabis, but I had my mind changed by reading Johann Harry's book, which was essentially that the war on drugs has failed. And it was a very compelling analysis. And it just made me think, look, Mo could be absolutely wonderful. And we've talked about this in relation to Northern Ireland when she suddenly just appeared in the prison. We didn't even know she was going there and she was talking directly to the terrorists. And we were going, what on earth is she doing now? But it turned out it was a good thing to do. On this, Tony, I think Tony's feeling was that she was just trying to be a bit cooler than cool and wanted to sort of go around the place saying, hey, I smoke dope and, you know, so what? And I think she had this line, you know, um, I, t- I took dope and unlike Bill Clinton, I inhale. And she just, I think he saw it as part of her kind of profiling and to be, I'm Mo Mola and I'm different to other politicians. And he didn't necessarily want this to become a big deal at that time. Um, hence, look, colon. I think I should probably write a piece somewhere about Tony Blair's use of the colon in relation to his mood. Look on. Okay. Well, let's, let's end on that. And thank you very much. That was, that was fascinating. And just a little stupid plug for people, but, um, and maybe more suitable the rest of history. But Mark Morris has written an amazing book on the Norman Conquest that I'm reading at the moment. And if you want to see people going over the kind of documents you're talking about, medieval historians finding the last surviving small poem in a 19th century book preserved from the 11th century or a particular chronicle and how they try to guess what happened at the Battle of Hastings or what the hell William the Conqueror thought he was doing. Well, I listened to the rest is history guys going on about Jesus on the way on the drive up. We listened to a lot of the rest is history. We also listened to the eugenics series by that guy, Adam Rutherford, where, my God, Churchill didn't come too well out of that one, I have to say. I think at least the rest is history guys admit that a lot of it, when they're talking about things like, I didn't realize, for example, there's a, there's a debate about when Jesus was born that's 12 years long. So we have our entire dating system. It is now 2023 because of when Jesus was born. But actually, there's, it could be 12 years out. So, so one of the points Mark Morris makes in this book is that with by the time you get to Edward I, which is much later, sort of 1300s, you literally know where he is every single day of his reign. But go 200 years earlier, and you literally cannot tell whether... William the Conqueror's in England or Normandy half the time. And there's an entire mm. two-year period where we've got literally no idea where he is at all. So thank goodness for all these documents coming out about Mo Molum smoking drugs. Not to mention Sky News whoosh updates telling us where everybody is at any given time. Exactly. All right. Lots of love. See you soon. All the best. Bye-bye. 